This is Off the Record, the weekly KOTO public affairs show that offers you, the listener, an opportunity to hear in-depth conversations on community topics and issues that matter. As always, you are encouraged to join the conversation by calling 728-4333. Now here's your host. Good evening, everyone. As promised, it is I, Laura Colbert, in the driver's seat tonight, hosting Off the Record. My guest is Jason Corzine, the CEO and president of the Telluride Foundation, a very new CEO and president. Uh, Today is his one-month anniversary uh, in that role, new to town. Jason, welcome. Thank you. When you uh, saw this job pop up on your radar, what'd you think? Well, first of all, (laughs) Uh, pleasure to be at the Purple House on Pine. <laughs> I can officially say I've made it in life to be sitting here today. Uh, so, yeah, you know, the Terry Foundation has such a great reputation in the state and really beyond the state uh, for being a, a catalytic funder of so many initiatives. And, you know, I myself, in doing work in and around Telluride for so many years, was actually a, a grantee. Uh, of the foundation so I knew it well and of course I knew Paul and the team at the foundation and so I had a tremendous amount of respect for them when the position first came up a lot of people took notice of it because who wouldn't relish the opportunity to move to Telluride to run a a really uh, impactful foundation in one of uh, Colorado's most fantastic communities but when it first popped up, the timing wasn't right for me. I was uh, running a program at the National Park Foundation, was vice president of resource management, which allowed me to crisscross the country, protecting our national parks and public lands and working on some really impressive issues uh, on behalf of uh, the National Park Service. And that was also in the midst of the, the heart of the pandemic. And so about a year later, a lot of things had crystallized for me and and how I wanted to spend my time, which was not necessarily on an airplane, commuting back and forth to Washington, D.C. from Denver, which I had been doing a fair amount of. Uh, so also uh, my wife and I, Jennifer, our kids are, are now growing and grown and to the point where we're not quite empty nesters, but a year later, we're much closer with our daughter graduating high school in a few months. So the timing uh, a year later was much better. And when uh, folks from the foundation and the recruiting firm reached out to me to gauge my interest again, I had mentally turned the corner and I was all in and and ready to make this shift. So uh, it worked out. And again, I'm ecstatic to be here. Excellent. Uh, well, let's let's talk a little bit about the foundation, especially for folks who might have heard of it, might know a little bit about it. Let's, we'll do a little more detail here. What what is the what is the mission of the Tell- <laughs> what is the Telluride Foundation? What is the mission? What are the goals? How do how does it work? Yeah. So, <laughs> hopefully, this is not too much of a mystery, but we can uh, dispel some of the myths if, if they are out there, or at least add a little more clarity. the The Telluride Foundation is a true community foundation and and like many there's you know thousands of them around the country community foundations are established to really support the community the residents and and the quality of life 
for everybody within that surrounding community. There are large community foundations, there are small community foundations, but they all have the same purpose of serving their constituents uh, within the community, and that's what the, the Terrorad Foundation does. was started uh, 20, at this point, 22 years ago. The foundation celebrated its 20th anniversary in the heart of the pandemic, so I think it's safe to say that we are extending this out a little bit to continue to recognize that the foundation's been engaged in Telluride and the surrounding communities for 20 plus years at this point. And really it, the genesis of this, and I like, would like to think that the genesis of, of any community organization started well before somebody had the idea to seed it with money. And so when I think about the history of the Telluride Foundation, it, it could have literally uh, started 200 plus years ago when the miners coalesced to think about quality of life issues for themselves and how they worked and their work conditions and, and you know, kind of galvanized an opportunity to band together to think about an improving quality of life. So that is certainly not the history of the Telluride Foundation, but again, if you think about the spirit of this community, its historic roots, there's a lot of history in community gatherings and honoring community. Fast forward a couple hundred years later, uh, gentleman Ron Allred, uh, who many of you know as, as the, um, the, the brains and the genesis behind the ski area, actually saw a need to, again, uh, take philanthropic dollars, pull them together to start to support the community itself, quality of life issues. Uh, and so Ron, uh, with what he calls a, a good idea and some tremendous luck, which I think he's exactly right, founded the Telluride Foundation and, and had several of his friends, golf buddies at the time, uh, make financial support. And so I think they said there was 13 to 15 individuals that Ron uh, asked for financial commitments from to seed the Telluride Foundation. That was literally the genesis of the organization that we know today that is pushing out um, you know, upwards of a million dollars or close to it in community grants every year to 65 plus nonprofit partners, which is really the key to this work that we're doing. But over the, the history, this 22 years later, we have raised $75 million to support Telluride, the surrounding communities. So San Miguel County, uh, the West End, Montrose County, Uray County. So it, it is focused more broadly than Telluride, but I think we all understand the, the underpinnings of, of what makes Telluride so special uh, is the fact that it is rooted in these rural communities, both itself and, and those surrounding it. Before I forget, let me remind the listeners that this is indeed a call-in program. If you have any questions for Jason about Jason or about the Telluride Foundation, please call 970-728-4333 and we will get your question in there. If you're a little shy and you know Jason's number, you can text him. If you know my number, you can text me um, and we will get get your questions and get them answered. But Feel free to do the traditional route. Call 970-728-4333. Call us here on Off the Record. I'm talking to Jason Corzine, uh, CEO and president of the Telluride Foundation. You mentioned uh, that you are largely a granting organization mm -hmm. or in large part a granting organization. How do you distribute the funds? Yeah. 
So, first of all, let, let me also recognize a tremendous staff at the Terry Wright Foundation, uh, including Paul Major, who is the outgoing CEO and, and really the, f- the founder, uh, founding CEO of the organization. April Montgomery, Katie Singer, uh, Lane Demas, um, our finance staff, Karen, Susie Schaefer. There's a tremendous amount of people that make the foundation run and not to mention an incredible board of directors. So, you know, what we have figured out is the magic in supporting community is oftentimes in supporting the local nonprofits. That really is how community foundations should be supporting community. And this region, Telluride in particular, has tremendous nonprofit organizations and they actually are the ones doing the work on the ground. And so the model is to take philanthropic dollars because they do exist in this community and we should be putting them to good use, but to support organizations that allow uh, the community to thrive. And so while we have initiatives within the foundation that we also oversee, thinking about housing, uh, among other things. We also recognize there are many people on the ground doing great work, and we need to be supporting them financially. So we have a grants process that most of the nonprofits are familiar with. They uh, submit grants to the foundation. They are vetted by the staff, by a grants committee of the board and then awarded on an annual basis. And again, it typically runs, um, you know, $900 million. The, the goal is, is to spread as much philanthropic dollars into the community to support as many organizations as possible. Some years are leaner, some years are heavier, uh, and it just really ebbs and flows based on the amount of money we can raise to support those initiatives. So. At the heart of the foundation is really the, the community granting the, the work that April oversees. It is the core of what we have been doing for so many years. And now we're starting to evolve to think about new ways to deploy philanthropic dollars. But the true heart of the foundation is to support our nonprofit partners. You mentioned that you are evolving in, in other ways um, that we'll get we'll get to that eventually, which is is projects that the foundation itself is is spearheading because right. I know uh, a lot of folks when I mentioned that I was going to be interviewing you said what's going on in Norwood with that housing project <laughs> so if you are listening we'll get to that okay. uh, that amongst, amongst amongst other things yeah. um, but let's let's talk a little bit about your uh, your background uh, you were with the Trust for Public Land for a lot of years 18. 18. Um, and you said Austin and Denver, mm-hmm. largely. Yep. And uh, one of the things that really helped introduce you to this area specifically was the Wilson Peak Access Project that you worked on for... A, that lasted a long time. Yeah, it felt like it was forever. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to give the, the thumbnail synopsis of, of what that sure. project was and how that introduced you to the area? Yeah, and I'll, I'll say, you know, I had... I had recreated and and played in Telluride long before I started to work here professionally. So while I don't profess to be a local by any means and, and never will uh, by the standards of, of what locals are judged by, um, you know, I have been coming here since I was a kid with my parents. And so... From where? Uh, from Little Rock, Arkansas. thought I detected a little tinge yeah, or something there. A little <laughs> southern accent. Maybe, maybe with a hint of... Uh, 
uh, Texas draw sometimes. Got it. So it's a mix. Um, yeah, I grew up in Little Rock, and, and my family had good friends in Telluride, and so I've been coming here since the 80s, uh, quite literally as like an eight-year-old kid, playing in Town Park, fishing in the pond, uh, exploring Bear Creek, like, you know, pretty untethered. And that left a, an indelible mark on me, even at a young age. And, and so this community this geographic community as well, the San Juans. Um, it's, it's part of my DNA and it's, a, it's really a hard part to shake once it gets in your blood. And of course I had dear friends that have moved here over the years. And so we've always been drawn back to this community again, and mostly in the form of, of seeing friends, uh, recreating, enjoying festivals. But then I had an opportunity with the Trust for Public Land to run a program called the Red Mountain Project. And this was based out of Denver, but really allowed me to uh, become more embedded in Telluride, Uray, uh, the surrounding communities, Silverton to some degree. And that project was an exciting and, and uh, wild time, honestly, to, to acquire mining claims on behalf of the U.S. Forest Service. So mining claims that were privately owned by individuals or mining companies like Adorado. Uh, we acquired those to uh, shore up public land access, which was really the heart of uh, the Trust for Public Land's mission, really the heart of, of what I do, uh, had done professionally, and that is thinking about public land, public land advocacy issues. So that led us uh, on a multi-year project, uh, again, partnered with the Forest Service, but also the, the donor community, the local governments, to raise philanthropic dollars to start to acquire these mining claims so that they were not uh, essentially built on and, and blocking public access. Well, once you're in that business, and again, it's, it's um, sometimes not for the faint of heart, but always exciting and, and interesting, it led us to an opportunity where somebody uh, said, you know, we got an issue here in the community, and that is access to Wilson Peak. And since you are in the business of buying mining claims, you might want to try to give this one a run. And so, again, uh, the evolution of the project led us to this culminating event, really. Thousands and thousands of acres later, we found ourselves negotiating with the landowner who owned a series of, of mining claims on the Rock of Ages trailhead. Uh, up to the peak of Wilson. I met him. Yeah, we've all met him. You've, you've, we've all yep. met him. Yep. Uh, an, an infamous character, I think we would say. Uh, but what it really underscored was the fact that, you know, we needed to remove this uh, obstacle from the community's enjoyment of one of the nation's most iconic 14ers, uh, while also working with the foresters to make sure we didn't overuse it or at least started to appreciate it in a way that was sustainable. So that, that really, you know, the Red Mountain Project culminated in the Wilson Peak Access Project and, and it really showed me the power of community and what you can accomplish when local leaders, local advocates, nonprofits, and again, the philanthropic community can come together uh, to make a project happen. Also learned that, you know, um, there's always opinions about how you approach your work, what, you, what you've done right and what you've done wrong. And so I've, I learned quickly that sometimes 
doing business in Telluride is, is often like operating in a fishbowl and you have to be ready for that. So I think mm-hmm. all of that prepared me for the next step, although that could be de- uh, to be determined. Um, but really that showed me the power of this community, that particular project and the spirit of how we approach not only protecting land, but making sure it's a community engaged process. Was there any point during that project, which, you know, the short story is the guy wasn't letting people go up the mountain (laughs) and you wanted to let people go up the mountain. So there's a lot of machinations to make that happen, but that you thought this, this isn't, this isn't going to work. We're never going to get there. Yeah. No, that happened all the time. And I, my, my sort of philosophy around large, complicated transactions like that, particularly in the conservation world, is that they die at least three times. And that one probably had its six, seven uh, death events. And I thought it's never going to have super complicated. Yeah. But uh, at the end of the day, as they say, uh, the spirit of the community prevailed. And, and after many, many uh, painful hours of negotiating uh, this project with the landowner, we finally uh, found a path to get it done. And it really involved the Forest Service as well. But, you know, the guidance from the town and the community about how we could approach this really is what made it happen. I did have a, a question texted in okay. about the, the granting process. Um, it is from uh, Kara. She, she asks, how, how does... How does the foundation and or you <laughs> plan to make the distribution process of funding and decision making more accessible or inclusive of the greater community? Yeah, it's a it's actually a great question and something that we April and I are, are talking about now as well as the grants committee is is really thinking about dispersing funds in a way that addresses all the community needs regardless of the topic but also making sure that you know the demographics that we are serving are also more inclusive and so the foundation is thinking about and actually ap- approaching you know the thought of of how we weave diversity into our grant making process recognizing that we need to be more mindful of um, all communities that we we serve but more importantly that the nonprofit partners that we're serving are aware uh, of the opportunity to come to the foundation to really expand our inclusive grant making. Does the Telluride Foundation have borders, if you will? Uh, you know, a sort of uh, a hard area. line. <laughs> yes, I guess. <laughs> uh, is there? Is there? A, do you draw a hard line to the service area? Is it a little bit malleable? Of um, all communities that we we serve, but more importantly, that the nonprofit partners that we're serving are aware uh, of the opportunity to come to the foundation to really expand our inclusive grant making. Does the Telluride Foundation have borders, if you will? Uh, you know, a sort of uh, a hard area. line? <laughs> yes, I guess. <laughs> uh, is there, is there a, do you draw a hard line to the service area? Is it a little bit malleable? issues actually opened my mind and the organization's mind that there is so much more opportunity beyond just traditional conservation. And so the Trust for Public Land at the time uh, was, was really focused on access and preserving access and didn't think a lot of, I mean, n- not intentionally, but more unintentionally about equity of access and issues around that. We also were finding ourselves gravitating to serving more of an urban population. Uh, again, 
much needed in that space as well. But what we recognized was that rural communities oftentimes could benefit from the same services that urban communities were getting from our organization. So this Community Futures program that we started was really based on what I learned in Telluride and in the surrounding communities. And that is, you know, public lands access is great, but if you're not working to address larger issues, you really haven't served the community. And so under the premise that with an intro of thinking about protecting your natural resources, you could also think about quality of life issues. And that is, again, health and the access to the outdoors, equitable access to the outdoors, both for physical and mental reasons. Then that led us to the economics of rural communities, which also led us to what makes rural communities so inspiring and uh, pleasurable to be a part of. And so the Community Futures program we started in 15 communities in the Intermountain West, so in the most remote part of uh, Montana, all the way to Taos, New Mexico, and kind of everywhere in between. And this was really focused on uh, delivering services to rural communities with the concept that protecting your natural resources comes first and foremost. And when you do that, you can address so many other issues um, that that are important to the community. And you start to open yourself up to be more inclusive of community members, uh, particularly those who who don't have or can't access the outdoors. So, you know, again, when when you start working in rural communities, you start to see the underlying opportunities are much greater um, than what you maybe originally entered the community to solve. And once you start to solve one, you typically can start to solve or at least attempt to solve some of the other pressing issues, particularly around uh, economy, uh, equity, as well as health and environment and, um, and in inspiration. Yeah, none of these are siloed by any stretch. No, no they're, in fact, they're all connected. And so I, it's hard to pull a thread without others coming with it on any of these topics. Um, and then I'm, you know, I'm just I'm thinking uh, there are several eye-opening moments in the process of running Community Futures on behalf of TPL. But one was a community listening session in Taos, New Mexico, where we were um, engaging the community on on the best way to protect wilderness and and get access to wilderness because that was one of the issues they wanted to address. But you know, in the in the course of this conversation, one of the um, attendees uh, of this listening session was a mother from the local pueblo, and this this might you know it's you have a few um, life changing moments, and this might have been one where you know a typical group of of public lands advocates they all look the same, they all dress the same, they're all standing around talking about the same issues. And this uh, indigenous mother came up and she said, you know, that's great. We appreciate the need to protect this natural environment, but I, I don't go to those places. I, don't, I can't access them. I don't even know how to access them. I don't have the gear. I don't have the knowledge. And all I really want to do is allow my daughter to ride her bike down the sidewalk without getting hit by a car. 
can you address that issue? Mm-hmm. Because that's access for us. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, was a, it was a very sobering moment, actually, mm-hmm. to realize that even though you had best intentions to come in and address community needs, you're oftentimes missing the bigger opportunity, and that is serving everyone. And so... But that was also about the best outcome you could help hope for out Absolutely. of a listening session because it was meant to be a listening session. That's right. So, <laughs> And that was the spirit of it. And so we actually started to pivot to think about ways where we could serve the community in ways that they needed and not what we manufactured because we felt like a certain place was worthy of protecting or not. We needed to serve those in the community. And, and that's really what shaped, I think, at that moment in time. And this is now... I want to say eight years ago, it left a mark on me and um, a powerful one where I, you know, I, I really started to appreciate rural communities are diverse and rural communities have many needs and, you know, there are opportunities to serve them. And when you come into an, uh, an opportunity like the Tyride Foundation to make impacts like that, you have to seize that moment. And, and Telluride has the power and and the wherewithal, again, both financially to make a difference, and they have, and we will continue, and we will continue to grow and evolve to meet the need. Was it hard to bring some of your colleagues along on that pivot that you had in that moment? No, I don't, it wasn't hard to bring them along. It, you know, it's certainly a different model where you, <laughs> you, you do pivot from thinking about larger uh, land issues and land access to a more community-based need. Like, how do you how do you start to plan for parks and bike lanes in in the urban core? And so you you might not think Taos is as an urban area, but you know, in relation to the surrounding area, it very much is. And so again, it's like, yeah, the same services we could provide San Francisco or Denver or Portland, Oregon, you can provide to Taos, New Mexico, because they have the same needs. And so it really isn't that hard of a pivot. You just have to reframe and rethink about your work. And again, you know, that's the spirit behind community engagement. You hear things that set you off on a path to improve and address community needs. I'm talking with Jason Corzine, the CEO and president of the Telluride Foundation. Uh, He's new in the role, started on February 1st. We're talking about the foundation, his background, where the foundation is headed. If you have a question, call us here at the studio, 970-728-4333. This is off the record. And that is a really good segue to listening sessions you are going to be having in this region. Do you want to talk about this? Yeah, so... (laughs) I think it's uh, safe to say that I, I do not come at this work um, professing to have all of the the ideas uh, resolved or, or even <laughs> any of them resolved, but, but more importantly, a chance to really uh, take a step back because I am new uh, with these listening sessions that are opportunities for the community to inform us on what the foundation has done well what we could improve on, where there are gaps, both in who we're supporting or how we're supporting our nonprofit partners, community members. So, you know, the listening session is is really just that. It's a chance to galvanize the the communities to, to give feedback and to reflect on how the foundation has served them. 
my goal is to take that feedback and blend it into, you know, a, a new, maybe not a new strategic direction, but uh, a new pivot to where the foundation has been. Um, so the listening sessions are core and we're doing uh, four of those throughout the region. There will be one in Telluride at the end of March. I have my first one in Norwood on Thursday morning. Um, and then there will be one in Ridgeway and Uray. So it's, you know, it really is just a chance uh, to hear from the community and it's feedback. And that's really what I want. Um, so I, I come in open eyes, open ears, open heart to, to listen to what the community has to say and see if I can glean from that, you know, where we can improve on, on how we've been serving this region. And I'm assuming the information for that's on the website, on Facebook, sort of yeah, it's, when and where and all yep. that. Okay. And uh, if you need specific instructions, I can get that to you as well. Uh, and my colleague, April Montgomery, who's uh, going to be riding shotgun with me, so to speak, on some of these, has put out uh, information into the nonprofit community. So I think the word is out there. But certainly, if we missed it, we should improve on that. When and where is the one on Thursday in Norwood? Just it's at the library. Okay. At yeah. what time? Uh, Nine thirty. A.M. A.M. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just checking. Yeah. No, th- thanks for asking. Nine thirty A.M. at the library, and um, again, it's we we want to make sure this is not seen as just like stand around, drink coffee, and and meet me. This is really intentional about come to give us feedback. I want to hear from you and I want to, I want to really want to know what works and what doesn't and where we can improve, where there are gaps. It sounds like you want to start your time at Tired Foundation with this information and not get it a year in. I think for me to do my job accurately and effectively, I need this information on the front end, which is why we're starting so early, uh, you know, in my tenure. Well, speaking of listening, I'm doing really good with the transitions here. Speaking of listening, um, because this is Kodo, there's often a part of Off the Record when we have a new guest or a new person in town where we talk about music. Yeah. And uh, I, I asked the, Jason the hardest question. At least it's the hardest question for a lot of people I know. It certainly would be for me, um, which is, what's your favorite song? And that's really unfair because I, you know, yeah. songs change, li- lives shift. But I said, well, what, what would you want to play on the radio just as this is the song that you picked for tonight. So uh, he texted me a couple of I, of options. I'm going to play one, and I'm, I'm going to say what it is, or actually I'll have you say what it is, but I think we'll talk about maybe why you chose it after. You bet. How's that? Okay, so go ahead. Here's right. your chance to be a DJ. So it's my DJ in training moment. Uh, <laughs> I have chosen TV on the radio winter, and if you know TV on the radio, a fantastic band out of Brooklyn, New York, that no longer plays together, but has left uh, an incredible mark on independent music, TV on the radio. Yeah, I know. 
All right, TV on the radio with Winter. Jason's pick for today's show. So, Jason, yeah. why'd you pick it? Well, I hope everybody agrees that song is awesome. <laughs> uh, that is one of my favorite bands, and and um, I did, you know, when I had the chance to see them at any opportunity I could, whether it was in Denver or actually traveling. Uh, I saw them at the the Greek Theater in San Francisco. Uh, just a powerful band with a powerful message, and that song in particular. Uh, I was thinking about last week when we woke up to a powder day, two powder days, three powder days, and the reality that we are still gloriously in winter as we should be. Uh, although, and there's a, a line in that song about we, you know, we're anticipating what the summer brings, but I'm still really appreciating what we have right now in the in the. Uh, glorious uh, powder and snowfall that is life-sustaining not only to this community but to our environment and so I woke up last morning singing this song and when you asked me to pick a song this was for some reason at the top of my mind so a lot of thoughts around TV on the radio and winter but we are still in winter and let's embrace it it's a banger Um, let's get back to you following (laughs) <laughs> or at least driving out to see TV on the radio shows. Yeah. I mean, how often did you do that? Well, I, I was fortunate enough in Denver where I could see them at the Ogden, the Gothic, and so seen them a handful of times, and then I kind of had the sense that they were uh, heading to a hiatus and, and posted a la- not a last show, but an opportunity to catch them one more time, and so I made that happen. Well, we have a caller. All right. Maybe they want to talk about TV on the radio. Let's <laughs> Let's find out. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Hello? Hey, hello. How's it going? Good. I was actually just called to see if we could pick up the show in about 20 minutes from now. If you could do what? If we could pick up the uh, the free slot that Ben oh. talked about. <laughs> Got it. Okay, sorry. I'm, I'm sure you can. Uh, I will be abandoning the station at 7, so come on in. Nice. I'd love to. Anyone listening... They can expect Nick and Ashton on air in about three minutes. Can't wait. Right on. We'll see you then. See you then. And that, folks, is Kodo right there. Community Radio. Radio. Does anybody want to call about their last dog? (laughs) I mean, it's fine. We do it all. Anybody need a ride to New Jersey? Exactly. We can can arrange that as well. All right. Uh, If you do want to call about anything or with a question for Jason about the Telluride Foundation, uh, the number here, 970-728-4333. Talking to Jason Corzine, CEO and President of the Telluride Foundation. Jason, let's talk a little bit about the programs that the Telluride Foundation is uh, currently working on, um, programs in the hopper, that sort of thing, because you you, know, you said besides being a granting organization, yeah. you're obviously taking some funds and spearheading projects right. directly yourself. Um, let's start with housing, uh, mm-hmm. because it's on everybody's minds, but also you had an interesting model uh, for this, this series of projects that you're doing. That's, is it starting out at Nucla? was the first... Yeah. Revit, uh, what was the first one? Norwood is the first. Oh, I th- for some reason I thought there was one before that. There could have been. All right, never. Forgive me if I, if I don't know. <laughs> no, that. I might be a little <laughs> off on that too. So let's talk about about Norwood and, and how that works. Yeah. So I, you know, I think it's safe to recognize that that not only the town of Terra, the town of Mountain Village, uh, the local housing entity, 
everybody has been focused on this issue and, and we know it is the most pressing issue facing the community and again the surrounding communities and so I, I think the Terrorite Foundation's housing rural housing initiative was born out of the need for uh, all, all people to put the effort into addressing this in any way they can and certainly partnerships are the strongest way to do this but timing impacts partnerships uh, to some degree funding and so the Terrorite Foundation really saw an, an innovative way to start to branch into not a, addressing rural housing at its core because you know that's going to take a heavy lift but to help move the needle and so Paul who is uh, the former CEO really started to think about this as an initiative of the foundation and came up with a very what I consider innovative model and that is really the the spirit of the Tyride Foundation very innovative very nimble uh, flexible in thinking about how to approach and address issues and so this really is was um, an initiative of the Tyride Foundation to pilot a model in Norwood uh, called Pinion Park and there is a website for that and there's a tremendous team working on that so it's it's now Paul spearheading that with David Bruce and Lainey Demas. April worked on it as well. A lot of people have worked on it. But they are at a point now where uh, this model, at least this pilot, is going to be breaking ground in Norwood. And, and this was truly in partnership with the community of Norwood to think about how you could put 20 plus affordable housing units in that community to meet their needs. And this is really to address the workforce, right? So they're deed restricted, uh, they're designed uh, for teachers, service uh, people, whether it's uh, fire, police, you know, people who are really truly serving the community to get a price point on a home that, that meets their salary. And that is oftentimes the, the tricky part. And in fact, as I'm looking at some of the dynamics of housing prices, not only in our community, but the surrounding communities, you know, the, the average home in Ridgeway, I think is now approaching $800,000. So this is very sobering. Um, and again, the Tyride Foundation will not solve this, uh, nor do I think we're professing to solve it. It's, it's one model in a series of models that communities are deploying. And, and that is to really think about um, prefabbed homes um, models where if you get the land, you can build really incredible housing at an affordable price that uh, really serves the core of the community. And my understanding is the financial model for this project is a little unusual or new, I should say, yeah, in that there's the seed money and then sales uh, proceeds from the sales of the house then go into the next project. Right. Is that and then, you know, at its core to even get a project like this kicked off is, is what we call the P3 model or public-private partnerships. So there is uh, state money, there's grants, there's philanthropic dollars that flow into this. All of that is to reduce the basis to make the house affordable. And, you know, of course, oftentimes land is, is one of the biggest obstacles. So where you can find land and you can find land at um, an affordable price, you've really helped yourself bring, bring down the strike price to a point that starts to make it affordable. Problem is, you know, these are at scale so, you know, you, you just, you're limited in how many you can build, but 
I think the model that the team has pulled together is is really intriguing. Uh, again, I know the town of Telluride is, is doing their own model uh, that will serve the community, same with Mountain Village. And so, you know, I think I'd like to see a little more uh, cross-collaboration and partnership in that in the future. But again, it's about timing and need. And so, you know, rural housing emerged as one of the initiatives for the foundation, and, and we're going to embrace it. and and see what uh, we can move the needle on going forward. And assuming this project is successful, there is a, a, a plan to do developments like this in a couple other communities? Yeah, so the, the next one, and they will be successful, there's no doubt in my mind. Um, so the next one, when Norwood uh, breaks ground, uh, quite literally Ridgeway, the project at Ridgeway, is in the making. So they're in the, you know, the approval process with the local governments. Um, but the vision is there, and I think it's our unique opportunity to play a role in rural affordable housing. And again, that's not to say that this is uh, solving a, a very major issue at its core, uh, but I do hope that it helps provide some you know, basis for uh, community relief on a, on a very important issue. When I was interviewing uh, for this position, having my conversations in the community and, and of course doing the research housing was at the core of it and I think it's as we talked about earlier all of these issues are tied together so quality of life issues you can't address without addressing housing economic issues you can't address without addressing housing You've got to settle the, the, the very bottom part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs first. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and then I think that trickles up or down, however you look at it, also into health and health equity. I mean, it, housing is, is really important. And, and again, I think if you can help address this, you can then get a better grasp on, on some of these other larger issues that face rural communities. Are many other community foundations direct dealing with housing in this direct a manner actually building <laughs> houses well i uh, <laughs> i i don't know the answer to that i know many community foundations fund other organizations to do this right and that's what makes us unique is that we right. fund uh, organizations but we also uh, to your point can take the philanthropic dollars to test our own model and that's what we're doing here and you know it's not it's not for the faint of heart, I'll say. It, you know, it's, the risk profile on these can be pretty big, which is why you make sure you do the first one right before you kick off a second, a third, or a fourth. And then I'm really interested to see what the model of this uh, turns into. It could likely grow to a point where it's no longer feasible for the foundation to house this initiative. It could likely grow into a totally different business model. And so we don't know that yet, um, but this is our opportunity to really, uh, again, take an approach to address an issue and then see if this model works and how we can replicate it. You mentioned um, health equity, health care is, is yeah. one of the other areas that you uh, hope to help address. Uh, are there any current programs or future programs that the foundation has yeah. in that area. So our, our biggest role in supporting public health and health equity is, and to think about this region becoming one of the healthiest in the state, is to, is to really coordinate with an entity, Tri-County Health, which is a supporting organization of the foundation. And so this 
is probably a more traditional model where we help stand up an organization to take on these issues. And Lynn Borup and her team at Tri-County Health have done an amazing job. And so this is one where, you know, really grants and philanthropic dollars to a supporting organization to do the work is where you're best served in the mission. And so I want to make clear to the listeners, the Telluride Foundation uh, really gets nothing accomplished without these partnerships, these local nonprofits. Same thing with education and arts, Bright Futures, an incredible organization that is thinking about child care, early, early childhood issues, but has also evolved into a powerhouse around addressing um, inclusivity in the community and making sure the entire community is served. So the power really in this work is, is rooted in the nonprofits and supporting them. Same thing with arts, classic education, uh, sports, um, economic entities. So if we think about uh, the opportunity to, to really think about growing Telluride's economy from a standpoint that again is, is not just based on tourism and the recreation industry, that is a, a fantastic role where organizations like Terride Venture Network come in, which was actually started by one of our board members to, to really think about local business and, and how we embrace it and expand it uh, by education and convenings. Just to get back to, to healthcare for a moment though, it sounds like the foundation's main involvement then is, fun, is the funding of tri-county and then you're not spearheading a particular program directly at the moment right yeah yeah so we we do not unlike we have initiatives within Mm -hmm. the foundation that that we work on another one of those is broadband so we're helping you know expand broadband into the community particularly down valley Mm -hmm. so those are things that we take on and oftentimes we take them on because there's a a need or a a gap uh, that we can step in and fulfill and that again is a model that is really intriguing to me because it it kind of breaks the mold of traditional community foundations. This is not your grandmother's community foundation kind of thing. Uh, we have a model where we can use our own resources to try to help solve an issue. But again, I always like to think we, we do this in partnership, but on these bigger audacious opportunities, you really need experts and you really need to find capacity because there are there are individuals in this community and particularly thinking about Tri-County Health, where they should take the lead and they are doing tremendous work and doing the work in a way that the foundation can never achieve just based on capacity alone or experience. What Besides broad, broadband and this specific housing program, what are initiatives that the foundation has taken on directly because there was a gap, there wasn't a pre-existing organization working on it? Yeah, so ho- housing and broadband are, are really the probably the two most prominent at mm-hmm. the moment. Um, you know, I, I think we see opportunities, uh, again, I don't know that we'll spearhead anything that's not in true partnership, um, going forward, but, you know, how do we start to think about climate? You know, can the foundation start to lean into climate issues? And that's personally important to me. So, you know, is there an initiative within a burgeoning initiative within the foundation that focuses on climate? Absolutely, and, and that's the future of how we start to think. But again, we're not climate experts, and we're going to need partnerships uh, to do this. And you don't need to reinvent the wheel. No, 
<laughs> or or <laughs> we don't need to be climate experts and scientists, but we need to help fund those individuals to help serve this community on a very audacious issue. Another thing we had spoken about a little bit earlier was uh, food security and the foundation's involvement in that. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah, and so again, this is really driven by partnerships, our nonprofit partners, particularly on the West End. And so the the vision there is not only to provide healthy food to local uh, communities, but to also think about how you how you support the local agriculture and economic system on the West End, improve access to local and nutritious food, and, and really starting to think about populations that, that need it the most. And so in partnership with the Fresh Food Hub in Norwood, you know, it's really thinking about helping ranchers and farmers get their products into the community, not necessarily to market, but really into the community to the underserved and, and to serve the, um, the base, the core of the community, the elderly, the young. So a lot of that is, is really, again, done in partnerships. So and when I think about food economy and food insecurity, I really think about these, these sort of regional food coalitions that the foundation has supported. And again, uh, I would be remiss if we didn't call out tremendous amount of people working on the ground to deliver these services. And our role as a funder is really the best spot for us. You also had talked a little bit about early childhood education being a focus of the foundation. And who are you? I'm assuming you're working with Bright Futures on yes. that. And, and anything else? Well, you know, I think Bright Futures was actually founded out of the, you know, an initiative of the Terry Wright Foundation. And uh, full disclosure, Kathleen Merritt, dear friend of mine, and uh, fanboy of Kathleen. Arkansas. <laughs> yeah. It's clear now. Uh, they might be listening. Uh, she's from Alabama. Her husband from, is my best friend. I knew Jason was from yeah. Arkansas. So I so said, we, they're, my na- they're my neighbors, well, also in full disclosure. <laughs> we, uh, he was my neighbor since ninth grade. <laughs> so, again, it all comes full circle like it does in many small communities, but Again, I think about the work that Bright Futures has done to serve uh, early childhood and families. And again, starting to, to really recognize Bright Futures as a powerhouse on a number of issues, particularly around making sure that we are inclusive in our work, uh, that we are touching all families and getting the money where the need is, the programmatic efforts where the need is. And so, you know, that's early childhood education. There are many individuals supporting uh, k-12 opportunities as well Uh, we have within the foundation a scholarship program or actually several scholarship programs but probably the most uh, prominent right now is the chang chafkin uh, scholarship which which focuses on first gen opportunities and a really incredible uh, opportunity to to get funding to to kids to get into school of uh, different you know calibers um, run by um, a woman out of Ridgeway, Villain, and she's really the programmatic effort to that. And so again, think about the foundation as a conduit for philanthropic dollars and then how you can push it out to serve the greatest need in the community. And so this happens with donors, it happens with the nonprofit partners, and again, I think of us as a catalyst and not necessarily the ones responsible for doing the work. Any other programs, areas that we, we haven't touched on? 
I think we touched on most <laughs> of them. Um, you know, there's safety net opportunities as well. That is, uh, you know, thinking about how you build strong uh, funding opportunities for need, you know, emergent needs. And so this was uh, a great opportunity during COVID. I think a lot of organizations raise money to support the community during that time. But those safety net programs are critically important. Uh, the foundation has a program called the Good Neighbor Fund, which provides emergency financial assistance to our community members in a time of need. And so you can think about, again, the bigger initiatives, healthcare, childhood education, what you're going to do about climate issues, um, how you think about the entrepreneurial environment that you're creating in this community. But at its core, you have to be supporting the people. And so these, these, you know, these programs are just as powerful uh, as the ones that are addressing physical, mental health, uh, education opportunities as just basic human needs and the ability to meet those to keep people, you know, again, in a pure quality of life opportunity. Well, Jason, thanks thanks for joining us uh, tonight. We're getting towards the end of the show. If anybody has a burning last-minute question, you can call here in the next three minutes, <laughs> 970-728-4333. I'm talking to Jason Corzine, the director of the Telluride Foundation. Uh, well, since you have been on the job for a month and lived here for a month and a week or something like yeah. that, what's the most uh, surprising or delightful thing you have discovered about Telluride or the community? Or <laughs> something you didn't, I know you've, you've spent a lot of time here yeah. since you were young, but is there any, anything new you've run across? Well, I, I, I gotta be honest. I'm, I'm still just like in awe of not only the work we're doing and and the community impacts we have, but again, I I felt like I I knew this region quite well, but I am still just completely impressed with the people, the spirit, the energy. And then when I walk out my office door and I look up Bear Creek or towards Ajax, I just I it's surreal. And and I think again, that's the piece that draws us all here is that natural beauty but with that comes some really interesting challenges um so uh, you know i'm i'm grateful to be here i loved waking up on a on a powder day are you uh, a skier yeah i'm a skier okay. yeah of course i am okay just checking <laughs> that was that was part of the the draw to this is uh i'm a telemarker uh, and some people don't consider that skiing i know you know who you are free uh, your heel and free your mind yeah, or free your soul yeah <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's, that is my passion, but, you know, just uh, getting out on public land in general, enjoying that, making sure again, that it's seen as a community benefit. That is where my heart lies. And then, you know, I, th I think as we start to think about bigger issues around climate, when, you know, as a kid, you wake up to a powder day, you're just giddy about powder and I still am, but I also start to think, you know, this event, this snowfall event could be the difference between a, a catastrophic wildfire and, you know, a, a normal operating summer of beauty and and thriving environment. So I'm, I'm starting to really pay attention to what our climate is doing. Still take a lot of pleasure in a powder day, but more importantly, I start to recognize, you know, we have a very fragile climate in this area and um, this is what makes it all work for us 
And so I'm mindful that while it's great fun, this is also pretty serious business and, and we as a community need to start paying attention to it. Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And if uh, somebody has any brilliant ideas for the foundation, how who should they reach? Should they reach out to you or... Yeah, I mean, that's where I get my cell phone. Over uh, you don't have to give your cell phone, but, you know, I mean, you could tell people to go to the website no, no, or yeah. email you or something, you know. Yeah, I think most people know how to, how to reach us again. Okay, um, right. Call the hotline. Go to the listening sessions. Yeah, go to the listening sessions. At which, and when will the one in Telluride happen? March 24th. Okay. Yep. All right. That's coming up pretty and, soon. And, uh, again, word is out. And, again, it's just a great opportunity to get the get the word out let us know how we're doing what we can improve on but more importantly educate me and and help me get onboarded to the opportunities and issues within the community thanks again jason my pleasure thanks for listening to off the record opinions expressed on this show are those of our guests join us again next week for another installment and in the meantime drop us a line at news at koto.org with feedback and ideas Oh, you're